Good morning again. Today we continue with the Life of Paul series. Uh, he's well into his second missionary trip now. Really about two-thirds of the trip has, has come completed, and now we've come to part 10, and we find Paul having reached the historic city of Athens, Greece. Now, mind you, his traveling experience is not what we are accustomed. When we think of sailing to Athens, which is how Paul came to Athens, we normally think of things like travel agent, cruise, comfort, well-thought-out vacation itinerary. Paul's situation was much different than that. Often, his travel plans were very sporadic, on the fly. He never knew what was happening, and it was always based on the circumstances at, ha- at hand. I'm not sure if he carried a suitcase or not, but whatever he used, it seems like it was always packed and ready to go. In the situation for today, Paul was rushed out of Berea. He had a scramble down to the seaport, and he jumps on a ship, and he travels to Athens, and that's where we find him today. This trip, uh, I think, and I think a lot of people may agree, that it's one of his most famous stops. Like, he went to a lot of different cities. This is one of his most famous ones. Here, it's going to be this gigantic collision between Paul's Christian worldview and the worldview of Athens. And Athens was known for their intellectual abilities. And it's all coming together. This trip also marks the first for Paul in that it's the first trip that he was alone. Silas and Timothy do not come with him on this trip. They are going to rejoin him later, but he does, they do not come to Athens. So he's alone on this, no doubt. I think that would make the time more challenging. Uh, certainly, I think he would be probably more lonely. Um, so yeah, that's where we're going to see Paul now. One of the things um, that are of great value to us this morning is that I want us to notice the similarities between Athens and our cities in America today. Like I realize that the gap has been like thousands of years between when Paul was in Athens and now, and yet I think we're going to find some very strikingly obvious similarities. And I think the reason that this is of great value to us is because it's going to allow us to watch Paul in action and see how he handled things. And then I think we should glean from that and apply, oh, that's how Paul did it. This is how we can do it as well. So I want us to be on high, high alert for similarities. Because Paul's trip to Athens helps us answer some really important questions. Like, what does it look like for Christian ideas and the Christian story to be proclaimed among people with very different ideas and a very different story? How do Christians engage the culture? How does it work? Does it work? Acts 17 and the story of Athens and Paul there helps us. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 17. We're going to see, I think it's a brilliant display of how the Holy Spirit leads Paul as he engages with the intellectual Athenians, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, waiting for who? Them, Silas and Timothy. While he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled. Within him, when he saw, the city, when he saw that the city was full of idols, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? 
Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he's telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. First, let me give you a little bit of history, a little background. I think that's helpful here about Athens. When Paul arrives in Athens at this time, she's just past her prime. Her glory days are in the rearview mirror, if you will. About 100 years prior to Paul's arrival, Athens had made quite the reputation for herself. It had impressive military victories, a booming economy, democracy of elected officials. They had influential leaders all throughout this town that made impacts worldwide. Even some would consider that they're still making impact today. People like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. They had talented artists, great architects, buildings like the famous Parthenion. Have you ever seen it? Personally, pictures of it? Google it. Build its amazing design. They were home of the original Olympics. Sports were a big deal. And they were very, very religious. So, you see some similarities between Athens and cities here in America? I mean, just think about it. Yesterday, packed football stadiums. Today, everybody in religious buildings, or some. And there's this idea that that's how they did life as well. And though Paul arrives to Athens while she's on the decline, Athens is still a leading power center. It's a place, it's a hub where intellectuals will gather together. No doubt Paul would have known as a boy about this elite, famous city called Athens. And now while he is there, walking around the city, like you and I would do if we were tourists, what he sees there, what stands out most to him, what blows him away, it's not the beauty, it's not the charm of the town, it's not the technology, the thing that makes him distraught, the thing that troubles his spirit is the city is chuck full of idols. Every direction he looks, every corner he turns, every building, every billboard, every public park, every restaurant is plastered full of idols. I read several commentaries this week. Every one of them included this quote of this ancient Athenian quote, and here it is. It's every one of them said, it was easier to find a god in Athens than it is a person. The city was swamped in idols, drowning in idols. And much like Athens, our cities are practically the same way. I, I, I love, I like what Tim Keller, he's pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York. He makes this observation. I think, I think he's right. He says, look at whatever buildings in your city are the biggest those usually indicate the idols. Drive into Orlando, Atlanta, Chicago, those big cities. And what names do you see on those big, tall skyscraper buildings? Banks, hotels, so money, entertainment. In Ocala, our tallest building, yes, Ocala has one of those. It's called the Sovereign Building. And it is run by or owned by or leased by Ocala National Bank, right downtown. And usually in the bigger cities, there's also these big stadiums that are associated with it. So we got banks, we got entertainment, hotels, life, and sports 
All of these things are right here, big idols in our towns. And I know it's not just that. Oh, our hearts and our emotions, and don't kid yourself, sometimes you get, we get some of this, our hearts and our emotions get very consumed with the Academy Awards and the Grammys or technology or education or health and lots of little idols all over the place. Am I way off base here saying that Athens and our cities have a lot in common? I think they do. And if you say yes, the next question might feel a little pointy in your chest. It did mine. Does it bother you like the way it did Paul? Ooh. I, I will confess, too often I dismiss idolatry in our culture with a comment or a thought like, well, the world's just going to be the world. They're going to do what they do. And that is true. But, like Paul, our spirit should be troubled by that. What would it might suggest if Christians aren't bothered by idolatry. Perhaps that we are doing the same thing and we've grown indifferent to them. And what is an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give your attention, your resources, your loyalty more than God. That's an idol. Paul is troubled, so what does he do? He does what we have found to be his normal routine. And he does it alone this time. He saw that the city was full of idols in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. This was his go-to strategy. This is the same pattern that we see time and time again that Paul uses. He first hits the synagogue and the Jews and those who worship God. And then he's off to the market street to proclaim the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. This was his regular habit of engaging his Christian lifestyle with the culture that's around him. And so I think if we are going to be serious about studying the life of Paul and learning from Paul, that we should follow him and have the same habit of engaging the culture with our Christian lifestyle. It seems a little different this time in Athens for Paul, though. This time, it seems that the people, are, they, they, they kind of pride themselves on their sophistication and their intelligence and being able to win a debate. Now, again, I think that kind of describes people that live in cities in America today of winning the debate in Athens. These people aren't mentioned by name, but they are mentioned by the worldview that they hold. Look at it, verse 18. They are identified as Epicureans and Stoics. Now, an Epicurean, I think we would cl classify that today as a person who is a hedonist. A person who lives his or her life striving to maximize total pleasure. Like, they believe that the only good life 
is a life without pain. That pleasure is the good life. Their goal in life would be to maximize pleasure and to minimize pain. That's one group. And then there's the Stoics. And they hold a, a worldview that is much different than the hedonist. They are especially known for virtue. That's the only good thing for human beings. All the external things, wealth and pleasure, money, whatever, they are neither good or bad. They don't really matter. But really what matters is virtue. They are all about moral excellence. So get the picture here. Paul has left the synagogue, and now he's out on the street corner. you got Paul with his Christian worldview, telling people about the good news and Jesus and the resurrection. The Epicureans are out there telling their worldview, saying, hey, live life to the fullest, live it to maximum pleasure. And then you got the Stoics out there with their worldview, and they are all verbally duking it out on the corner of First and Main. That's what's going on. Pretty sure that sounds a lot like today. It might not be literally on the street corners, but I think social media platforms does this. On and on. You ever read the comments? Oh, man. Thankfully and rightfully, Paul in these verses is not the one doing the name-calling and the belittling. That is never to be part of the debating Christian with others. To stoop to name calling. Good job, Paul, for following the Spirit's leading. But some of the others, they are calling names. They are calling him a name. They are calling him a pseudo intellectual. Now, pseudo, I'm so proud that I remember this from biology class. Pseudo means not genuine, sham, fraudulent, pretend. They were basically saying, You are a fake in intellectual, saying that he doesn't know anything that he's talking about. He's a fraud. He's a loony bird. And I say loony bird because there's another translation in the Bible that it doesn't use the, the pseudo-intellectual word. It says Paul was a babbler. Well, a babbler was like a bird that would pick up seed and then just spit it back out without digesting the nutritions from it. And the point was this. Oh, you're like a person who just picks up an idea and then you just ramble on about it and you pretend like you're some professional or some expert on the topic. But no, you're not. And I realize that today, Babbler probably doesn't make the top 10 names and cut down names that exist. But it, it's a very derogatory term. It means obnoxious talker. You, you, you Babbler. I'm sure I'll hear that in my house this week. <laughs> Use it appropriately. Uh, verses 19 through 21 tells what happens next. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So the debate moves from the market street to a place called Areopagus. Now Areopagus can mean a couple things. It can mean a hill, and it can mean a court, and sometimes it means both. I've got a picture for you here. Here's a, here would be a situation right here for in Athens of the Areopagus. It's both. 
And here would be a site, this would be a place where the town leaders, there would be a, a panel, a council, and they would be in charge of like overseeing legal things that would happen for the town. And it was also the place where all the new ideas would come. And so now we've got Paul being invited to this Areopagus to share the newest, brightest, shiniest new thing. This strange talking that they have. And he comes to talk about it. And again, I think our cities are a lot like this today, all about this new idea. Like, there are millions and millions of people who can't miss. They are glued to the six o'clock evening news. That's the word new with an S. News. New drama, new happenings, new catastrophes, new stories, new developments. I mean, if I went over to your house sometimes, some of us have that background, CNN News, or, I mean Fox News, going on in the background all the time, just in case there's something new. And some of us are not quite so pathetic, and we just are interested in new music, or new movies, or new gadgets, or new fashion, or new discoveries. We are very much a people that are into new. Guilty? Hmm, few. For the people of Athens, the gospel was a new teaching. Jesus was a new teaching. I'd like to think that we have established several similarities between the city of Athens and our cities today. And now these remaining verses, I hope that we will help teach us how to engage the culture by following Paul's example. It started with Paul having a troubled spirit. That is the spark that leads us to engage the culture. No troubled spirit, no engagement of the culture. Verse 22. And let me say this, that verses 22 through 32 are just summary bullet points of what he actually said. Like, this is like two minutes worth. He did not get up to this big rock. Well, it's gone. But he did not get back up to that big rock, 10-minute hike up there to say two minutes worth of stuff. He probably, experts think, scholars think, he probably talked for three or more hours. I'm not, but he did. We're getting just the bullet points here. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I will proclaim to you. This is brilliant. Paul finds a common ground to build on. I perceive that every one of you are very religious. That was probably an understatement. Remember, this town is drowning in idols. But what's really important to know here, that Paul is not praising them for being religious. Being religious is not the goal. As a matter of fact, being religious can just as easily move a person away from God as it can towards God. Any religion apart from Jesus is a dangerous and harmful religion. It can destroy a person's life. But Paul makes this very general reference to their being religious, and he's going to connect it to what he says next. 
It seems that these people were so, so religious that they, did want, they took no chances in missing out on all of the gods. So just to be safe, let's make one the unknown god, just in case we miss. One of the most amazing things I read this year on ancient Athens was this. 600 years before Paul came to the town, they had a nasty, terrible plague swept through their city. And there was a man by the name of Epimenides, I think that's how you say it, Epimenides, and he had a great idea of how to get rid of it. He let loose a flock of sheep in the middle of the city. And wherever those sheep lay down in front of an altar, they then would sacrifice that sheep to the temple god. Lay down in front of Zeus, god of the sky, sacrificed to Zeus. Lay down in front of Artemis, god of prosperity, sacrificed to Artemis. Lay down in front of Nike, or the way we say, just do it, Nike, god of victory, sacrificed to Nike. And then, the most amazing thing to me, it was at least, we got all these sheeps around, and some of them laid down not close to an altar. And what do they do? Plan a sign, plan an altar. This is to the unknown God. They were very religious people. Probably with good intentions. But this kind of religion was leading them away from God, not to him. But this was Paul's in with the people. He knew their unknown God, and he's going to introduce them to him. Paul establishes a common ground of their being religious. Do you think we have religious people around today? All over the place. And he's going to connect it to a truth claim of the Bible. Verse 24. He says, this unknown God is the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Can you see Paul doing this? Men of Areopagus, there is only one true God. You've got this all wrong. You've got all this little G gods going on around here. Like this God can only take, one, take care of one thing in the universe. And this guy can only take care of something else. This guy's got the sky covered. And this guy's got the ground covered. This God over here, he's got fertility covered. And this God over here, he's got prosperity covered. And this God over here, he's got victory covered. You got it all wrong. There's only one true God and he made everything in it and he's Lord over it all. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is one God who made everything and is in control of everything? Because what you believe about God shapes everything about you. One of the most fundamental ideas of Christianity and our relationship with God is that we must believe that God is a creator 
and we have obligations to Him because we are His creatures. And oh, don't you know it, that there is an all-out defiant attack by Satan and his who are trying so desperately to separate this idea that mankind is a creature made from a creator. Millions and millions of dollars have been spent to try to undermine this truth. But there is a God, according to this verse, who is responsible for giving each breath to his created, breathing creatures. So do this with me right now. Take the deepest breath you can. Inhale. Now exhale. God gave that to you. And the next one that you take, and as many as he gives, we are obligated to him. And this is the battleground. This is the spiritual war that each person must decide for him, his and herself, which flag they are going to carry, where they will stand, and who they will follow. Paul finds this common ground of their being religious, and he and he connects it to the truth claim of the Bible. The first truth claim that he gives them is a big one. There is one God who made the world and everything in it. And we can learn from this. Religious people, non-religious people, find common ground. All around us, there are these common grounds. Like like Nature sunsets how often do we say oh look at that beautiful sunset you know where that came from our creator and we tie that in or science or music movies sports all the things that are around us find common ground verses 26 and 27 he continues you religious people the unknown god that you don't know but i do know verse 26 He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. That's Adam, right? That's the one man that started this. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And why did he do it like that? Verse 27. So that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. By God's design, he has placed each person exactly where he needs to be at exactly the perfect time. For us, it looks like this. He has placed us in North America, not Europe. He's placed us in Florida, not Georgia. He's placed us in Ocala, not Zephyr Hills. He's, he's placed us in 2022, not 1822. And all of that is on purpose. He has put us exactly where he wants us to be for the primary purpose of seeking God. Do we think like that? Everything else is secondary to seeking God. How many people go off to college and they find their spouse and they say, oh, I just knew this is why I was sitting here to meet you. 
Could be true. But it's secondary. It's not the primary. I am here on this earth to make money, and I'm going to make a lot of it. Maybe. That's secondary. Primary thing for us is why you exist when you exist right now is so that you will seek after God. Bible tells us what happens when this process of seeking God comes about. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me. Oh, this is not the impossible game of hide and seek going on. When you seek me with all of your heart. Proverbs 18.35 For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Our greatest need in life is finding God. Not Nemo. But I will say this. Finding Nemo is a common ground that can lead us to biblical truths. There's a bridge there. And we can be that creative with finding common stuff around us. And here's the best news, is God has made it easy for us to find him. I know it's hard to think sometimes, but all of our life circumstances, exactly where he has us in life, is for the primary purpose that we would seek him, find him, rely on him. And God is nearby and he's waiting to be found. Then Acts 17.28 shows another brilliant use of using this, this common ground approach from Paul. When he says, verse 28, In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now if you look closely at this, he is being quoted while quoting other people. He's quoting poets of the town. It's a quote within a quote. I think it's brilliant of Paul that he is so in tune with the culture around him that he's able to make these connections using very common everyday things and connect them with, oh, God is really very near. I hear what your people are saying in this town. I see the movies that they're making, if they made those. And all of this, I want to connect to the biblical truths. Now, definitely a disclaimer. I'm not suggesting that we take on all of the world's secular ways of life in order to be relevant to the world. There are plenty of trashy movies and songs and books and other things to stay away from. Definitely hear that. But all around us are examples like Paul uses here. This secular poem, in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul is using it in a way to say, look, even your own regular people are writing poems and singing songs that give credit and acknowledge that God is the one who is nearby and that he sustains us. And when he does this, he's doing two major themes of the Bible are coming true. He's already established that God made the earth and everything in it. And now he goes to this. One, all people are made in the image of God. Two, all people are aware of God the divine. 
Hey, though mankind is sinful and broken, it doesn't change the fact that we are made in the image of God. And the heavens declare the glories of God. Everyone has an awareness of God. But Romans 1 says that they suppress that truth. They deceive themselves. But everyone, everyone has an awareness that God, that there is a God, regardless of their worldview position. Even the atheist, even the agnostic, everyone. Ecclesiastes 3 talks about how eternity has been written on our hearts. Well, where does that come from? Where do we get a sense of right and wrong? Why, oh, this is a big one today. Why are we so drawn to equality? Where does the idea come from that, that people have value and worth and dignity? Why do we search for the purpose and the meaning in life? Perhaps it's because they all flow from being made in the image of God and that we have an awareness of him. We hit the section now where Paul is about to really hit the nitty-gritty connection point, and he's going to confront these people in verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God has God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I don't know how long Paul was speaking here on our opagus, um, but it's the first time that Paul introduces judgment and Jesus. And those are not very popular situations. Imagine, think, think of how these comments would have hit them. Everything that they were doing with the temples and the idols and the altars and the sacrifice, Paul says, wrong. So wrong that you had better repent because there's a day coming that's already been picked out. It's already been selected by God where everyone will give an account for who they say God is. And here's the problem. They believed in many gods, not one. They believed gods lived in houses that had to be made by human hands. They had a very little view of God and God's. And notice, the moment that Paul brings up the resurrection of Jesus, identifying him as the righteous judge, it basically ends Paul's talking time. Look at verses 32 and 33. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. And then Paul left their presence. The resurrection was not a popular idea among the Greek philosophers. Oh, they totally liked the idea of Im immortality, of the soul. But they had no good ideas at all of a resurrected body. Material things were evil. So they could not even fathom this idea of a glorified body. 
I am sure Paul had a lot more that he would like to have said. I mean, in one sense, he just got to Jesus and the gospel. But it seems that the majority of the people on this panel shut this thing down right away when the word resurrection came about. And even though there were some who said, hey, we'd like to hear more about this, Paul doesn't return. And 34 gives us then basically the outcome of his time of speaking to them. Verse 34, however, some men joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite. I, I think that was a person that was on the council team, one of the leaders there. A woman named Demarius and others with him. And this seems to be the normal pattern when the gospel is proclaimed. Some will mock, some are intrigued and interested in hearing more, and some believe. And the question for each one of us is this, which category do you find yourself in when the gospel is proclaimed? Paul in Athens, I think there are four big takeaways and applications for us here. One, idolatry was running wild in their culture. And it's running wild in ours. Two, as a Christian, this greatly troubled Paul's spirit. And today, it should trouble the spirit, the hearts of Christians now. Three, Paul engaged the culture by using common ground things and then connected them to biblical Christian truths. And we can do the same thing. And four, Proclaiming the gospel in Athens was a mixed bag. Some mocked, some were curious, and some believe. And it's the same mixed bag today in our cities. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It was on purpose, intentionally. You wanted us to have this. You gave it to us. And we see it as a great gift. I, I pray that we would treasure it, cherish it, learn from it. In doing so, we know, Lord, that it can convict us and move us and change us. And maybe that needs to happen with us, like our spirits should be troubled with the idolatry that we see in our culture. Oh, we're not better than that. We know that. But that it would cause us to move into action, that it would cause us to engage the culture that we live with creative ways, finding the common grounds in conversation. Oh, you're religious? Well, what does that mean? And then be able to point them to the truth claims of the Bible. We praise you as being the God and maker of the universe and everything in it. Thank you for making us in your image. Thank you for making it that when we, for when we seek, we can find. 
Imagine how horrible it would be if that was not the case. Lord, as the gospel gets proclaimed, let us be some of the ones that are proclaiming it. And oh, Father, would you make it so that like the scales would tip, so that more believed and less and less would mock. Do this for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.